Let's take a Bible and let's open it this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 15 in the Old Testament. We're continuing in our study of the life of the great man of God, David. 2 Samuel 15, if you didn't bring a Bible today, we have a copy you can borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. Going to be on page 226 to begin, page 226, 2 Samuel 15, out in the lobby. Can you all hear me okay? Raise your hand. You can hear me. Okay. God bless you guys. I feel so terrible you're out there. I really do. Um, Saturday night. Saturday night. 12.30. Okay. God bless you guys. Hey, um, in one of the greatest movie classics of all time, Top Gun, yeah, um, it's true, Iceman confronts Maverick and he says this to him. He says, Maverick, it's not your flying, it's your attitude. The enemy's dangerous, but right now you're worse than the enemy. You're dangerous and foolish. You might not like the guys flying with you. They may not like you, but Maverick, whose side are you on? And you know, folks, that question that Iceman asked Maverick is a question that really a lot of our world revolves around that question. Whose side are we on? I mean, look, you go to a wedding and they ask you, do you want to sit on the groom's side or... The bride side, exactly. In politics, you're either on the left side or you're on the right side. In, in, uh, in labor disputes, it's the union side versus management side. When you go to a sporting event, it's the home team side and the visitor's side. It seems like the history of our whole world can be summed up in terms of people deciding what side they're going to be on. And this is not just true of world politics. It's also true of your life and my life. In that so often, isn't this the case, that we find ourselves in situations where the lines have already been drawn, people are already polarized, and all they want to know from you is, okay, which side are you on? That's all we want to know. Whose side are you on? Friends, this is a, a, a truth, a dynamic tension that exists not just in our natural world, but in the spiritual world as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, listen. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world system. There's one side. But rather, the Bible says, approve or embrace what the will of God is. Now, there's the other side. And so all of a sudden, here we find out that in the spiritual realm, there is God's side and there is the world system side. And whether we realize it or not, you and I, every single day, every human being alive, in fact, we're choosing which one of these two sides, God's side or the world system side, we're going to be on. And the stakes are very high. So this is what we want to talk about today, because our discussion grows out of a passage in the life of King David, where David deals with this very same issue. Whose side is he on? And so we want to talk about first David, and then we want to bring it into the 20th century and talk about how all of this affects your life and my life. So, a little bit of background. Remember, David, at the height of his, of his reign, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And, and he asked God to forgive him. God forgave him, yes. But God said, David, there are going to be three consequences that I'm going to leave on you because of your wrongdoing. <clears throat> and here's what they are. Number one, Bathsheba is going to bear a child to you. That child's going to die. Number two, there's going to be constant turmoil in your family, David, among your children. And number three, one of your own sons is going to rise up and overthrow you as king. And here in 2 Samuel 15, we are watching as consequence number three starts to come true. David's son Absalom has risen up and proclaimed himself to be king. He's marching on Jerusalem now to depose and kill his father. 
And that's where we pick up the story. So let's pick it up. Verse 23. David has decided to get out of town to head for the hills. Verse 23. And the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king also crossed the Kidron Valley. And all the people moved on towards the desert. Verse 24. And Zadok, one of the two high priests, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the ark of God. And they set the ark down... And Abiathar, the other high priest, offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Now, as you know, the ark was a symbol of God's favor, God's blessing. And when the high priest saw David being run out of the city, he quickly grabbed the ark and he followed the king. And when he caught up with David, everybody paused and the high priest really conducted a worship service. They had sacrifices, the Levites sang songs, they prayed for the king. What do you think, just stop for a second and and ask yourself, what do you think they prayed for the king? When the high priest stood up in the middle of this service and prayed for David, what do you think were the kinds of things he prayed for David? Well, I'll bet it went something like this. Oh, Lord, our king is being treated so horribly. That mean, terrible son of his has betrayed him and now he's being run out of town like a common criminal. So, Lord, our prayer is that you will be with King David, that you'll vindicate King David, that you'll be on King David's side, that you'll help his side to triumph. Why do I think that's what the high priest prayed? Because, folks, that's what I would pray for my friend in that situation. That's what you'd pray for your friend in that situation. Now, we saw last week how David responded. Look. Verse 25, and David said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. And verse 29 says, so Zadok and Abiathar, the two high priests, took the ark of God, excuse me, back into Jerusalem and they stayed there. Now, here's the question. David told the high priest to pick the ark up, return to the city. Meanwhile, he headed off into the wilderness, barefoot, weeping, disgraced. Unsure if he'd ever see the ark or Jerusalem again. So the question is, why? Why would David do something like this? Why didn't he let the high priest go with him? Why wouldn't he let the ark go with him? Why not accept those wonderful prayers and sentiments that the high priest had prayed for him, that God should be on his side? Why did he do this? Well, my suggestion is, why don't we let David answer that question himself? Look at the middle of verse 25. Verse 25, David says to the high priest, you take the ark back. And then he said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see the ark and let me see its dwelling place again. But if I do not find favor in God's eyes, if God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready for whatever God has. Just let the Lord do with me whatever he thinks best. You know, I had the privilege of being at the game a few years ago where Cal Ripken set the modern mark, Major League record, for consecutive games played up at Camden Yard. It was, without a doubt, one of the most incredible sporting events I've ever witnessed in my life. When they got to the fifth inning and the game was official, they stopped the game, Cal Ripken came out of the dugout, and they started playing this song. Give me one moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be. Now, I know you don't recognize it because I'm singing it, but you know the song. And they're playing this woman singing this song. And Cal Ripken starts jogging around the field, shaking hands of the people in the stands, people reaching over to touch him. Everybody's on their feet. The whole 50,000 people are all standing and clapping. The California Angels, who were the visiting team, are all on the dugout steps. They're clapping. Cal finishes it, goes all the way around. The song ends. 
He goes in the dugout. Everybody's still standing. Everybody's still clapping. They bring him out. They play the song again. He runs around the field and does it all another time. Unbelievable events. I've never witnessed anything quite like it. One of sports' greatest moments, I think. And you know, friends, as I look at the life of David, I see right here that this is one of David's greatest moments. Right up there with beating Goliath. Right up there with capturing Jerusalem. And I'll tell you why this is one of David's greatest moments. Because here was a moment where David shows us where his heart really is when it comes to God. David shows us in this moment why God called him a man after God's own heart and why God loved this man so much. Because what he tells us here, he sends us a message about how he saw his relationship with God. And the message is this. It's not about, David says, it's not about whether God is on my side. It is about whether I am on God's side. Mr. High Priest, you come out here with the ark and your sacrifices and your prayers, hoping to convince God to get on my side against my son Absalom. But in spite of all your good intentions, Mr. High Priest, you got it all backwards. See, everything in life, Mr. High Priest, is about us being on God's side. And look what David said. He says, if I'm on God's side, if the Lord is pleased with me, He'll bring me back to Jerusalem victorious. I don't need to take the ark with me. And if I'm not on God's side in my heart, if God is not pleased with me, he says, then you know what? We can stand out here and make sacrifices till we're blue in the face. We can pray, we can pick up the ark, and we can take the ark anywhere we want to take it. And it's not going to make one bit of difference. This is not about the ark. This is about where my heart is in its walk with Almighty God. That's what this is all about. Am I on God's side or not? No wonder that God loved this man the way he did. Now, how had David ended up with this kind of outlook? I mean, where did David get this, this point of view from? Well, I'll tell you where he got it. He got it right out of the Bible. He got this understanding out of knowing the Scripture. Let me turn you back a little bit. Turn back with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2. Page 171, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 171, Judges chapter 2. And while you're turning, let me just tell you that the period of the Judges in Israel was one of the all-time low points in Israelite history. Israel was involved in idolatry, immorality, injustice, corruption, ungodliness. I mean, it was really a nasty time. And I want you to see God's commentary on this. Chapter 2 of the book of Judges, verse 10. And after the whole generation that had been gathered to their fathers, the generation of Joshua, after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served idols. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him in their hearts, and they served idols. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around. They were no longer able to resist their enemies. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. And it goes on to say that God sent them judges. And as soon as the judge was done delivering them, they went right back to living the way they'd been living before. Now skip down, if you would, to verse 20. Therefore, the Lord was very angry at Israel. May I stop and say, it is not a good thing to make God very angry at you. This is not good. 
Okay. God was very angry at Israel and he said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down, because they've not listened to me, because they're not on my side, their hearts are not on my side, I will no longer drive out from before them any of these nations that Joshua left when he died. We all understand the problem, don't we? The reason God wasn't on their side was what? Because they weren't on God's side in their hearts. That's why they were losing all these battles. Now, let's finish up and turn a little bit. Let me show you the conclusion of this. 1 Samuel chapter 4, page 193. 1 Samuel chapter 4, page 193. Look at how the ark plays into all of this. Verse 1, it says, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And verse 2, the Philistines beat them, killed 4,000 soldiers. Verse 3, and so when they got back to camp, all the elders of the people came out and said, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Good question. Great question. The problem is they come up with the wrong answer. Look at the answer they come up with. They say, we need to go get the ark. We need to go bring the ark here from Shiloh. We need to take the ark out onto the battlefield with us. And if we do that, God will go with us and God will save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, folks, was the ark the problem? No. Did having the ark with them, is that like some kind of spiritual rabbit's foot? That if they got the ark with them, suddenly God's got to be on their side. God's got to give them victory. God's got to favor them. That's what they thought. So look what happens. Let's finish it. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated again, even with the ark out there. And every man fled to his own tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And verse 11, the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. Did having the ark with them make any difference? No. No. Because the reason God wasn't on their side had nothing to do with the ark. It had to do with where their hearts were. Their hearts weren't on God's side. That's why God wasn't on their side. And friends, David was a godly man. David knew the Bible. David knew he could carry the ark anywhere he wanted to carry the ark. But until his heart and God's heart were on the same side, it wasn't going to make any difference. And David knew that the secret to his survival, his restoration, his vindication, he knew that the secret was uh, was all about him, David, making the adjustments he needed to make to get himself firmly on God's side. And if he was firmly on God's side, not to worry, God would firmly be on his side. It's a given. He knew the Bible. That's how he knew that having the ark didn't make any difference. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. Everybody take a deep breath. Ready? (gasps) One, two, three. (laughs) All right, we can do better than that. I know we can. This is the third service. Y'all are awake. The first service is all right. Okay, but we can do better. All right, ready? One, two, three. All right, that's good. All right. Now, um, you say, Lon, so what? You know, except for the movie, I've never even seen the ark. You know, the ark doesn't follow me around, doesn't go anywhere with me. This is completely irrelevant to my life. No, no, no. There's a principle here that isn't, that we want to talk about. You know, in 1864, when when the outcome of the Civil War was still very much in doubt, President Lincoln, according to his biographer Carl Sandburg, was spending many an anxious night on his knees in the White House praying. During this time, a delegation of ministers came to see him, and as they were talking, one of the ministers said, 
that he, the minister, hoped that the Lord is on our side. And Lincoln stopped the minister and said, Reverend, I'm very sorry, but I don't agree with you. And the ministers were flabbergasted. They were like, what is this? You know, here's the the president of our country saying he doesn't agree that God should be on our side. And Mr. Lincoln very soberly said this, and I quote. He said, I am not concerned that the Lord be on our side, for we know that the Lord is always on the side of right. But it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. End of quote. And folks, David right here is sending us the exact same message as President Lincoln sent. That we need to stop worrying so much about whether or not God's on our side. We spend all our time worrying about that. That's the wrong thing to worry about. We need to worry about whether we are on God's side. Because if we're on God's side, it is a given God will be on our side. We don't have to worry about that. Now, you say, well, Lon, in, the, in, the, in all the situations of life, how can a person be sure that they're on God's side? Well, I want to take the rest of the time I have and give you four suggestions how you and I can make sure we're on God's side. You ready? Number one, if we want to be on God's side, number one, we need to enter into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 10, it's very interesting. God tells us in Romans 5, verse 10, that he sees the whole human race in one of two categories. Either his enemies or his friends. That's it. His enemies or his friends. And that the basis on which God makes the first cut about whether or not we're on his side or we're not on his side is over this issue of whether or not a person has embraced Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. You say, long time, right? No, no, no. Foul. God loves the whole world, Lon. The Bible says God loves the whole world. What is this enemy talk you're doing here? You know, God doesn't have... En- I mean, how can God love... You know, he, he's not, he doesn't have enemies. He loves people. Well, folks, God loves his enemies. Well, what, is, what did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5. He said what? Love your enemies. You can be God's enemy and have God still love you. You can be God's enemy and have Jesus still go to the cross and die for you. That's okay. Perfectly okay. And God says in the Bible that people who have not trusted Jesus Christ yet as their personal Savior, God regards them as His enemies. He loves them. He gave His life for them. But you're an enemy. You're not on His side. And and if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to challenge you today that it's high time you switch sides. It's time to switch sides here. That's the first and foremost, the absolutely essential step to being on God's side is to make a decision to commit our life to Jesus Christ. Everything else I say here makes no difference if you haven't done that first. But we can commit our life to Christ. We can be a follower of Christ. That doesn't automatically mean we're on God's side. So there's a little more to come here. Step number two is if we want to be on God's side, step number two, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, We need to live our lives in conformity with God's Word. We need to live our lives in conformity with the Bible. Listen to what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verse 23. John 14, 23. Jesus said, if anybody loves me, he will obey my teaching. If anybody loves me, if anybody wants to be on my side, Jesus said, he will obey my teaching. 
And friends, where do we find Jesus' teaching? Well, it's right here in the B-I-B-L-E, just as plain as day. Friends, you can take it to the bank. It's an airtight law of the universe. God will never lead anybody contrary to His Word. If the Bible speaks to an issue, that's it. That's where God's side is. And the best way to make sure that we are always on God's side is to find out what God speaks to here in the Bible and get on the side of where God says He is. You know, I'm reminded of the old story about Yogi Berra, how he was watching baseball with his dad. And he saw a guy walk up to the plate, Yogi did, and cross himself before he stepped into the batter's box. And so Yogi turned to his dad and he said, Dad, what's that mean? And his dad turned back to him and he said, nothing if he can't hit. (laughs) Now that there's a lot of truth in that. And you know, I get young couples who come to me all the time who want me to, 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 to help them figure out how to get the blessing of God on their life. They're going to get married. They want me to pray for them. I've even had couples in and ask me to lay my hands on them and confer a blessing onto them and their family. And folks, these people who come in, they're well-meaning young people, but they have the same problem the Israelites in the book of Judges have. They don't understand that I can pray for them, I can bless them, I can lay my hands on them, I can give them communion, I can buy them place settings of China, for goodness sake, and it's not going to make one bit of difference. Not one bit of difference. Because the blessing of God doesn't come because I lay hands on them and pray for them any more than it comes because the ark of God goes out on the battlefield. The blessing of God comes when people dedicate themselves to obeying the teachings of God in the Bible, in their relationship, in their family, in their personal lives. That's how you get on God's side. And when you get on God's side, God's on your side. And this just isn't true of young dating couples. It's true of people from 1 to 92. This is not about wearing a St. Christopher's medal. This is not about hanging a cross on the rearview mirror. This is not about taking a fish and putting that on your automobile. This is about obeying what God tells us in the Bible. That's how we get on God's side by a life dedicated to biblical obedience. Now, you say, but Lon, the Bible doesn't speak to every issue of life, right? Right. So sometimes, Lon, there are things that come up where I look in the Bible, I don't find God saying a single thing specifically about that, right? Right. We say, well, then how do I know where God's side is then? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. Number three, if we want to be on God's side in any situation, here's how you find out where it is. Find out what course of action most honors God and do it. Find out what course of action most honors God and do it. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 says, Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. And you know, folks, when I was a brand new Christian, I learned that verse. One of the first verses I ever learned, I said, this is going to be my life verse. I'm going to try to figure out in every situation of life what honors God the most and do it because I want God to honor me. And I'll tell you, after 30 years of being a follower of Jesus Christ, that verse has served me well. God has never let me down when I did what honored Him. You say, but Lon, how do you know? How do you figure that out in some confusing situations? Let me tell you how. We take the ethical principles of the Bible, things like honesty, integrity, morality, decency, faithfulness to our word, principles like compassion, forgiveness, faithfulness to our spouse, principles like full disclosure, ethical behavior in business, submission to authority. We take those principles and we apply them to the situation we're looking at 
and we say, now, what course of action will allow us to be true to every single one of these principles? And I promise you, God's side in that situation will bubble to the top real quick. You won't have any trouble figuring out what God's side is. It'll bubble right up there. The high road will be obvious and you'll be able to see it. Now, we may not want to do it, but we'll be able to see it very quickly. And this is the process I go through all the time. I apply these principles, it bubbles to the top, and once I know exactly what will honor God the most in that situation, I usually don't want to do it. So God and I enter into negotiations. We do. Now, maybe you don't do this, maybe you're more spiritual than I am. But we enter into negotiations. And, and, and I go, God, I really don't want to do it that way. And God goes, wonderful, that's your choice, but this is where I stand. If you want to stand with me, this is where I stand. And you know what the interesting thing is? God never moves in those negotiations. Weeks later, he's still standing right where he stood. And usually I come around to doing it the way he told me. Folks, God can deal with a certain amount of negotiating as long as you say uncle when it's all over. God can deal with that. But this is how you get on God's side. You, you let the road that, that will honor God, the high road, bubble to the top, and then you do it. And then you can be sure God's on your side because you're on his side. Principle number four and finally, if we want to be on God's side, principle number four, we need to practice the second greatest commandment. You say, now, what is the second greatest commandment, Lon? I didn't realize they were numbered. Well, two are. In Matthew chapter 22, you don't need to turn there. The rabbis came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have 613 commandments in our command book here. We got out of the Bible. Which one is number one? Tell us. And they were trying to entrap him. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. This is the first and the foremost commandment. And the second commandment is exactly up there with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or we will sometimes say it, do unto others as what? You want to do unto you, the golden rule. Jesus didn't call it the golden rule. He called it the second greatest commandment. And in the world of human relationships, where so often things are so confusing about what to do, let me tell you how you can always be sure where God's side is. Figure out how you would want those people to treat you and treat them that way. And God will be there. That's where God always is. As many of you know, I lead trips to Israel, getting ready to leave, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. And we have, we, we, I work with a tour company in Israel, and there are some very carefully defined, very rigid cancellation penalties that, you know, that, that the tour industry has. And we write them in the brochure, and then in big capital letters, we put in the brochure, buy travel insurance. Then I send a personal letter to everybody who signs up for my tour and I send them a brochure for travel assurance and I say, listen, these penalties are firm by travel insurance. Then I send out a document that says 20 most commonly asked questions about Lon's tour and I have a whole question, one of the 20. If I cancel, do I get my money back? No, you don't buy travel insurance. So this man, wonderful man, signed up who's going to take his daughter to Israel. That's great. And about two weeks ago, everything, all the money was in, everything was paid. We're up to the cancellation penalties being quite high. His father, her grandfather, took deathly ill and he decided, I can't go and leave my dad. I understand that. So they call and they want to know, can we get all our money back? Now, the interesting thing is, his daughter had told him, because she knows about the travel industry, Dad, we should buy travel insurance. And the father said, no. 
It's dumb. It's stupid. It's a waste of money. I'm not buying it. So he calls and wants to get his money back. And I, I said, you know, I'm really sorry. But four times we told you buy travel insurance. The brochure told you. My letter told you. My document told you. Your daughter told you buy travel insurance. You didn't buy it. I'm sorry. You know, I feel terrible, but I'm sorry. And so um, we sent him back the money that we owed him back. And then I started thinking about this. I started praying about this. And God said to me, now, Lon, if you were in that situation, is that how you'd want to be treated? I said, but God, four times I told him buy travel insurance. Four times. Yeah, 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 Lon. But you know how many times I've told you stuff? And you still get yourself in a mess and want mercy? Good point, God. Good point. So he said, now, what, what would you want to be treated like in that situation? And I said, all right, all right, I understand. So I called him up and I said, listen, I'm going to take some money out of my commission from the trip. And I'm going to send you some money. Because, you know, I, I understand and I just don't feel right about the tour company keeping it all. So I'm going to send you some money. And so um, I'm... I, you know, sending them some money. He said, Lon, you're a wonderful person. No, friends, don't believe that. That's a lie. I'm not a wonderful person. I wanted to keep all the money. I'm not a wonderful person. That's a lie. Don't believe it. I'll tell you why I did this. One simple reason. Because the next time I get myself in a mess like this, I want God to be on my side. And I understand for God to be on my side, I better be on his side in how I treat people. Now, let me tell you something really interesting. In the five days after I made that decision to send them back that money, God sent me and my family, this is the honest to gosh truth, seven times the amount of money I sent them from completely unexpected sources. Seven times what I sent back to that guy. Man, I should have sent him more. <laughs> I mean, that's how I see it. Dumb me. <laughs> You say, well, how do you explain that? I explain that because God's trying to reassure me and you. Hey, get on my side, okay? Get on my side. You don't have a thing to worry about. I'll be on your side. But I'm not going to come to your side. You're going to come to my side. Friends, how do we get on God's side in our lives? Very simple. Number one, we embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. It all starts there. Without that, you can't do it. Number two, we live our life with a deliberate Overt commitment to obey the Word of God. Number three, we find courses of action that honor God, and no matter whether we want to or we not or not, that's the way we do it. We do what honors God. And number four and finally, when it comes to human relationships, we practice the second greatest commandment. We treat others the way we would want to be treated, because that's where God is on that issue. And if we will do those four things, I promise you, you will never have to pray a single prayer in the rest of your life and say, God, would you get on my side, please? You won't have to pray that. God will be on your side because you're on his side. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe God has spoken to you about one of these four areas where there's need for some adjustment if you're going to really be on his side. And if he has, I want to give you a quiet moment for you to talk to him and say, all right, God, I'm willing to make those adjustments and those course corrections if you'll help me, because I want to be on your side. You take a moment to speak with God.
Lord Jesus, you know that we live in a very complex world. Human relationships, lots of decisions in business, decisions in our families. And Lord, it isn't always easy to tell exactly where you are there. So thanks for giving us these principles to help us. Principles that we can take to figure out where God's side is so we can get on it. And Lord, thanks for reassuring us today as you have that if we're on your side, it is an absolute certainty that you will be on our side. So God, may you change our life by what we've learned here today. And if there's need for course correction and adjustments in some of our lives, we've talked to you about that today. Lord, may you honor what we've said by giving us the power of your spirit inside of our lives as Christians, that we might be able to go out and make these changes reality. Lord, thanks for your patience with us. But I pray that you would use what we've talked about here to really be a defining element in our lives and help us to make that decision consciously and deliberately every day. We're going to be on God's side. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Father. Change our lives because we were here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.